Welcome to episode two of the Modern Day NBA podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hoppy. Today I speak with Eric Collins, the TV voice of the Charlotte Hornets. Eric started his NBA career as a sideline reporter for the Bulls in the late 90s. So yeah, he'll share a story or two about covering Michael Jordan. He replaced Steve Martin in the Hornets booth a few years ago. He's done a great job working with Del Curry ever since. Eric and I talk about the bubble, why the league desperately needs a second bubble, Devontae Graham's stellar season, and much more. Before we get started, I apologize for the shaky quality toward the end of the show. Eric was on the move. It was the best we could do. Besides that, I hope you enjoy. All right, we're joined by the voice of the Hornets, Eric Collins. Eric, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing okay. It's uh, hot here in Charlotte. It's like the surface of the sun, but besides that, I'm doing okay. 95 degrees. We'll all get through it together. Much like everything else that's going on in the country right now, Eric, just wanted to pick your brain. You have so much experience in the league. What have you made of the current state of events down in the Orlando bubble? Uh, well, to me, Adam Silver and the people working for him and obviously the Players Association as well because they agreed to it. But right now they seem like geniuses. Obviously the, the small exceptions of guys who have you know, done the wrong thing and left the bubble and, and made some mistakes and had to re-quarantine. Uh, but for the most part, the NBA, I think, is going to be the model for how this thing plays out because Major League Baseball is in all sorts of trouble. And it just seems like this NBA thing so far – has been flawless. So I just can't wait until the games start and we can kind of move forward and just talk nothing except for basketball again. That report came out last week. No player tested positive. That was remarkable, especially considering what's going on in our country right now. Over 50,000 new cases per day. And it's been even higher higher than that in the past couple of weeks. Eric, we talked before they made these decisions. Were you surprised that they went with 22 teams? You know what? I was. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, obviously, you know, you want a controllable amount of teams and players inside the bubble. But to me, the, leaving eight teams out is such a significant competitive disadvantage uh, to those eight teams that weren't allowed in over the next year or so in terms of development and uh, everything, all the way down to even skill level uh, with players. I just think they could have, they should have found a way to include all 30 teams. Um, NBA teams, the, the players theoretically could get down to a 12-man roster. Theoretically, you could pare down some of the coaching staff, whatever, but you could have a smaller scale situation. But I just, to me, I think it was a mistake. One of the small mistakes that Adam Silver has made, but to me, it was a mistake not to invite every team. One of the teams that was not invited, the team you represent, the Charlotte Hornets, they were right on the cusp, and that hurts them given all the young talent they have. Now they're just in this limbo position where they're not really sure when the season is going to start next year while the rest of the league just trying to get through this season and then the playoffs. What have you heard the Hornets doing? How are they going to try to make up for this? Well, the Hornets, I believe, are one of the franchises that are really pushing for what would be a second bubble, uh, a second venue where we would protect it for the players and staff, where they could scrimmage and practice against and possibly even play games against other teams that didn't make it to the bubble down in Orlando. Now, even if that is not something that is doable, I do think that the Hornets would still like just to be able to have access to their players and access to be able to coach them and put them through workouts 
and have them run five on five and scrimmage against each other. I just think it's, they're professional athletes and you're not allowing them to be professional athletes and to get better at what they do. And I think the Hornets are fighting mad right now, trying to, to find a way to get back their competitive edge that they've lost because they're not allowed to play games. So it's still a holding pattern, but I'm hoping that somehow the Hornets and the other teams that weren't invited down to Orlando are able to at least get their hands on players and try to do something to get their team from point A to point B. Because as we know, the Hornets are one of those organizations that maybe hasn't been able to attract the free agents that they would have liked in years past. They've made a commitment to trying to get better in-house and developing the players that they have. And when you can't practice, when you can't teach, um, when you can't have hands-on coaching, it's harder to organically get better from within. No doubt. This will be a crucial period for player development. And for a franchise like the Hornets, that's exactly what they're centering their entire operation around. Shifting back down to Orlando, you've been around this league for a long time, covered Michael Jordan and the Bulls in the late 90s. You know what these guys are like. How do you think play is going to resume once the games count for real later this week? And then in a couple of weeks when the playoffs start, do you think these guys will be ready? You have to think a LeBron James type will not miss a beat. To me, LeBron James just increased his championship odds with the rest that he was able to get for the three and a half months. um, And now just pushing forward and knowing that there's only eight tune-up games and then the playoffs start. I love the Lakers odds. Uh, LeBron can smell another championship, which he desperately wants. He would love to win or win with three different teams. Um, But I don't think that there's going to be any problem whatsoever with the level of play. I think these guys are going to be laser focused. There's no reason not to talk about no distractions. You know, I guess you could say I'd rather go fishing, but that's kind of the only distraction that's there. You know, you're there to play basketball. No one has been able to play for a month. This is what they do. They got to this level because of their love for the game. Um, So to me, talking about the quality of play is a non-starter. I think it's, it's going to be as good, if not better, than we see normally during the regular season just because the ball is still going to be the same shape, the court's the same size. There's not going to be fans, but I still, I still think there's that professional edge when you're playing against another professional team and when you're that good of an athlete that you don't fall. You know, it's, Your level is a certain level, and it's not going to go down. You're right. There are no distractions. We talked with Grant Williams last week from the Boston Celtics, Charlotte native, and he was talking about how they go fishing, they go play golf. Even then, there's so much time in your room, and he's a guy that likes to play Catan online, and there's all sorts of stuff you can do, but you can get focused and really laser in on the task at hand. So we'll see what happens when the game starts later this week. But I want to ask you quickly, we're talking on this podcast about trends of the NBA, where the game is heading. Obviously, the talk right now is the bubble. But beyond that, over the past 20 years, the main trend has been the three-point shooting. What are some trends that you've noticed throughout your time covering the league? And where do you think this league is heading? Do you think we'll see even more three-point shooting down the road? Well, I think what we're getting to is more and more like YMCA basketball that we used to see and used to play. It's where you don't necessarily have assigned positions where, you know, your tallest player is going to be your center and your smallest player is going to be the point guard and bring the ball across the half court line. I, I do think this trend of what the Rockets are doing, a positionless basketball, makes a lot of sense. Like, why 
bog down your offense and your defense with a player who is not as good as the other four just because he plays a specific position. To me, find a way to win with your five best players on the floor. And I, I think that so much uh, – one of the reasons I really respect James Borrego and uh, the job that he's done in the two years in Charlotte is the first day that I met him, he said, you know what, I don't react to what other teams are doing unless I have to. I want them to react to me. And he's always had that thought process when coming up with lineups and matchups where he's not a beholden to size and position. He wants to do what he feels is going to work on a given night. And I think that's going to continue across the NBA because it just makes so much sense. Like you have elite players play your elite players together at the same time, regardless of position. It does make sense. And when you consider how the league markets itself with these star players, that puts them in the best position to succeed. Another term we talk about, switchability, because if you can get guys out there that can guard multiple positions, then exactly what you said comes true, and it doesn't really matter who you have out on the floor playing what. Totally agree. I remember Steve Clifford, when he was uh, in Charlotte, whenever we would talk basketball, he would always say the most important thing in basketball is size and positional versatility. You know, guys who were long, who could guard a, a point guard, who could guard a power forward, those guys were in demand because that allowed you to switch and play uh, positionless basketball and put your best players on the floor. So I don't think that that's a trend that's going to go in the other direction anytime soon. Steve Clifford has the magic down in the bubble, just a short drive for them. I know they're on the outside looking in. They've got some work to do if they can propel themselves forward. The magic, I think you got to watch out for them. You know that Cliff is going to have those guys ready. What do you think Cliff has been doing over the past few months? Because we know just how much he prepares, how he analyzes his team. you got to think that was a great reset for a guy like him. You know what, Steve Clifford is one of my favorite people in the NBA, and he's got no hobby. His, his life his off the court uh, is all basketball all the time. And I think that's commendable. It's gotten him to this level. And, uh, yeah, I, just, I don't know about the talent level. And I think they're a little bit far back to kind of do any damage. I think they're just kind of there to, to get better as a team and to play games. And I think there's something worthwhile in that. But uh, I don't see them making a leapfrog and getting into the postseason. Well, when you think Steve Clifford, at least me personally, you think about that seven-game series with the Miami Heat, which I believe was your first season as the broadcaster for the Hornets, and that's the best season we've seen since basketball returned to Charlotte. It's a shame they could not close it out in Game 6. Anyway, let's talk about this year's team. That was a while down the road. They finished 23-42. and I'll be honest, Eric, as someone who watches the Hornets pretty regularly – they surprised me. They put together some good games. They had some high-quality play from Devontae Graham, and P.J. Washington was better than I expected as a rookie. This is tough timing for them because they really seem to be trending up, especially at the end of the season. Yeah, the last road trip that the Hornets had was they played magnificent basketball. They lost in overtime against the Atlanta Hawks. Um, they went down and they thumped uh, the Miami Heat for four quarters and won on the final day that – um, before the, we had to stall things down for the pandemic, uh, they were getting better. And they were getting better by using the right guys, you know, the guys who are going to be around when and if the Hornets get good at some point. You know, Devontae Graham was getting his minutes. P.J. Washington was being exactly what you would want out of a, a lottery pick from the year prior. 
Uh, the Martin Twins, uh, over the last three weeks of the season, were playing regular minutes, and they were showing that positional versatility and that size, 6'5", with long arms, who could guard any position, who had you know energy and motor and, and played winning basketball. You know, those are the guys who were on the floor playing meaningful minutes when the Hornets were winning games, when the Hornets went down to Dallas and won a game against a very good Dallas Mavericks team, when they won at home against the Houston Rockets, when they won against the Toronto Raptors. You know, these are all wonderful wins, and they weren't doing it with aging guys who aren't going to be around for, you know, the long haul. They were doing it with young players who were learning the system, learning the league, and getting better together. So it was really disappointing, and that's one of the the, the huge reasons why myself and the Hornets organization so upset that they weren't invited down to the bubble and there's not even anything confirmed yet where they can continue their season or at least practice because that's what they need. They need court time and reps, um, chance to get together, to work, to get coached, and to get better. Because I do think that for the first time in a while, future doesn't really bright. Eric, is Devontae Graham the real deal? He is. I have no doubt about it. The guy's got a talent level. I think that, you know, there are some things that he's going to have a hard time getting past. He's not exceedingly, exceedingly athletic. He doesn't have hugely long arms, um, but the guy's really talented. Uh, he can stroke the basketball. It's a good-looking um, stroke. It, it's going to consistently go in. It's not one of these kind of lucky things that he had a hot streak. Like, it's fundamentally sound. Um, he knows how to take care of the basketball. He has an instinct for passing and setting other guys up. Um, he comes from a winning program, uh, both at the high school level and at the college level. You know, he knows how to win close games and make big shots. Now, whether or not he's your leading scorer, you know, I'm, that, that's still up in the air. But I do think he is a quality NBA point guard who could be in a winning team's rotation um, as a starter or a key reserve. So, yeah, no doubt in my mind that he is a no-doubt keeper. Devontae Graham, for those of you that don't know, had a great sophomore season. He improved his scoring from 4.7 to 18.2, three-point percentage, nearly up 10 points, and then the assist as well, 2.6 up to 7.5. Thanks in large part to Kimball Walker's departure. Eric, I know you weren't around for the first years of Kimball Walker in Charlotte during the Bobcat days, but I also know you follow the league very closely, and you did at that time. What do you make of a comparison between these two? Because I think about it, and when Kemba first came into the league, he struggled with the three-point shot. Now, Graham, I think, is a more natural three-point shooter, and we're seeing that when he's gotten more volume in his second season. The biggest difference I could see is Graham doesn't exactly have that finish-at-the-rim ability that Kemba had right out of UConn. Where do you see that comparison? Uh, no doubt about that with the finish at the rim. Uh, layups were an issue with Devontae, and I'm sure that he would agree with that statement. I think he has a chance to get better at that. You know, there's multiple examples of guards over the years who have gotten better uh, just simply making layups. Ricky Rubio, a couple of years ago, I remember talking to him, and he said, you know what, I finally figured out how to make a contested layup on a consistent basis in the NBA. And it was all about placing it higher on the backboard, something that he just wasn't doing early in his career. So it's it is sometimes a fixable thing. And I think that Devontae is going to understand angles and bodies and speed. And I think he's going to get better inside. I think that's something that's workable and doable. The one thing that I do have with Devontae comparing him with Kemba, which is a little bit unfair to both men, is, yes, this is Devontae's second year in the league. But you got to remember, Devontae's 
spent a postgraduate year out of high school, so he's actually entering college as a 19-year-old, and then he spent a full four years at Kansas. So Devontae right now is 25, and he's going to be 26 during next season. So he's a second-year player, but I wonder how much more development is remaining. When Kemba came into the league, he was a 20-year-old, you know, second year in the league, he was 22. And there's a big difference between 25 and 22. So I hate to, to compare those two. Um, but just percentage-wise with Devontae Graham, it wasn't just the opportunity that gave him better numbers. Yes, he got way more minutes. He was a starter for the majority of the season. But every single important statistical category uh, in terms of percentages, he went up. He went up in free throw percentage. Uh, he went up in field goal percentage, true shooting percentage, three-point percentage. His assists for 36 minutes were up uh, in, impressively. Uh, his turnovers were down. Um, so it wasn't just the fact that he was getting more playing time that allowed him to put up more numbers. It was the fact that he truly got better in every single category. Folks around the league, too, Eric, are taking notice. We've seen the Hornets marketing campaign to get Devontae Graham the most improved player of the year award. Not sure if it's going to happen, but the numbers certainly give him a chance. So let's move on to your personal career. You've spent a lot of time in a lot of different places. You got your master's from Syracuse, undergrad at St. Lawrence, started out in Rochester as an assignment reporter, and then you said, hey, I'm going to go do sports. And you ended up filling in for Vin Scully with the Dodgers. You've done some Yankee games. How would you describe your crazy path now in Charlotte? Uh, you know what? It, it's been fantastic. It's been a great journey. Uh, it was a bit of sacrifice for the first 10 years. You know, I always knew what I wanted to do, and it's one of those things. In, in TV sports, a lot of other people want to do what you want to do, and it's kind of a matter of waiting them out and getting an opportunity. Um, but even those opportunities and waiting everyone out, I still found a way to enjoy. Um, baseball was fantastic. I always thought that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing Major League Baseball. I, I always said that if you have a job where you get a chance to go to spring training every year, you're living a great life. Um, but baseball was uh, a, a great thing for me. I spent five years with the Dodgers. I spent four years doing minor league baseball. But when I was being true to myself, I always knew – that I was kind of doing baseball games as a basketball announcer would do it. You know, I still think my baseball is, I, I, I think that, you know, I love doing baseball. And I think that I was a little bit uh, ahead of my time in terms of my style. I think that, you know, eventually people would warm to my, my style, but it is a high energy basketball centric style. And I've kind of found my sweet spot doing the NBA. Um, I can bring it 82 nights of the year. You know, that's, I get so excited being in an arena. And uh, so everything that's led me to here has been worthwhile. Baseball taught me about the grind. Baseball taught me about loving what you do and putting in your preparation. And the bus rides and the motel stays told me about loving what you do and committing to it and making it be your number one priority. But all those things being said, uh, I've ended up where I needed to be. I'm in a good market for me. I'm in NBA City doing NBA basketball with a partner in Del Curry that I absolutely adore and admire. Eric, you do bring it every night, and you brought it back in November for Duke and Stephen F. Austin. The Lumberjacks have done it. That was your call, and it blew up on Twitter. Obviously a monster game. You got a lot of praise for what you did. How was that experience? I know you had a Hornets game the night before, driving up 85. Just 
had to be a whirlwind. You know what? It's, you bring up that drive, and it was a whirlwind because I we were down in Miami the day before. I believe it was Miami. could have been Atlanta. But we flew back uh, the night before, and I had to go. And I didn't realize that it was close to three hours from Charlotte and Durham. And as I'm trying to get there, I realized that I was really tired. I have a hard time getting any energy. And I got there, and I did the game, and it was unbelievable how quick the drive home was and how much energy I had for the drive home. <laughs> uh, it just goes to show you, you know, what sports adrenaline is all about. But uh, I was lucky to have a good game. Uh, I was lucky to have a wonderful analyst in Dan Bonner. And everything worked out, and I'm so happy that I didn't screw anything up too bad when uh, this was such a great moment for not only Stephen F. Austin, but all of college basketball. I was glad that I was able to capture the moment the way that I wanted to. Eric, had you ever called a game in Cameron Indoor before? Uh, I had done uh, a women's game. I did uh, North Carolina versus Duke uh, many years ago, but I'd been up in that crow's nest, which a lot of people don't know about at Cameron. You have to call games from the rafters, and it's not very comfortable, and it gets hot and steamy up there, but uh, it is still Cameron Indoor Arena, and uh, it's awesome. So I can't complain, even though the location is not ideal. We mentioned that you covered the Bulls, a sideline reporter, late 90s, early 2000s. We saw you on the last dance a couple of times. What was that like, just looking back on it, realizing that you covered such a historic era in the league? That was awesome. It really was cool. Uh, I actually knew it at the time because I was late to the party with the Bulls. I got hired for their, their fifth championship. So I was around the team from 96 on, and uh, they had already won four titles, and Michael was already just a huge uh, star in the world stage. And I knew that with all the cameras around every single day that this was history in the making, and that I probably would never be around anything anywhere close to this for the rest of my life. So it was awesome at the time, and it was awesome 20 years later to look back and see what we all look like. And, uh, you know, that was – that was fantastic. And to have the memories come back as well, that was really cool because huge personality. It's Rodman and, and Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. And being a young kid, just learning in a professional way in that environment uh, was something. Eric, how'd you get that gig? That's sweet for someone from Chicago. The Bulls, as hot as they were, how'd you pull that one off? total luck. You know, I had worked in Chicago and I had a mentor in Chicago. I was a low level um, field producer at the NBC affiliate in Chicago. And I was making bucks an hour. And, but the biggest part of that job was the experience. And I learned from the best, you know, Chicago is a fantastic news town. And I learned from all the best anchors and reporters and producers. And along the way, I got a chance to obviously meet them and the network. So I got my first job actually holding a microphone and being on air in Rochester, New York. So I left Chicago and all these people that I knew and these wonderful professionals, and I went and tried to hang out no shingle in Rochester, New York. I did that for a year and immediately said, this isn't what I want to do because news is hard and news is not sports. It's still television, but it's, it's hard. And some people can do it and other people can't. And I was part of that crew that, that can't. It was hard. You can't smile. 
You got to be an expert on styrofoam cup, you know, within 45 minutes. Um, there's a lot of different things that you have to do in news that you don't have to do in sports. And it just wasn't for me. So I wanted to go back to Chicago and just kind of recalibrate and figure out where I could go from there. And I called a buddy who was my mentor back in Chicago and said, I'm leaving Monster. I'm going to come back. Um, if you have any, hear about anything, let me know. And I was just thinking producer wise, something behind the scenes. And he said, let me make a phone call. And he called over to what was then called sports channel Chicago and said, I got a guy who I really like. He's a good friend. He's talented. He's going to come back to town. Um, if you have anything open, let me know. And they kind of just thought he, my mentor's name is Warner Saunders. They thought that he was saying as a on air person, but really Warner was just inquiring about someone, whatever to produce and to, to edit or do whatever. And so they called me back up and said, well, we need someone right now. If you really want to do it, when can you get here? And I said, I can get 24 hours. That night I drove from Rochester, New York to Chicago, and I interviewed, and they hired me on the spot. So it really was just right place, right time. Um, there was a small aspect to the story. There was a cable station that was starting. It was called CSI, and it was going to be a rival to ESPN back in 1995. And when it started, it was a big thing. They were paying a lot of money, and people wanted to go there. And so there was a reporter from Sports Channel Chicago who was trying to get out of her contract to go to CSI, and she was able to do it. And that's why they needed a reporter on the fly. And I was encumbered with an agent or with a contract, and I had nothing to get out of. And I was able to start the next day. So I was the person who got the job. Wow. What an awesome story. Turned out great for you. Such a historic time in the NBA, probably the most historic time. Eric, we know you got to go. I want to ask you, what are your next few months looking like? What have you heard from your bosses? And are you just kind of waiting this out like everybody else? I'm just kind of waiting it out. Um, I normally do a lot of college football during the fall, but that's still up in the air. Um, there's a chance that the Hornets may play in a second bubble. I uh, may have some scrimmages. Uh, we don't know. Nothing's been set in stone. So much like I've been doing ever since March 11th, I'm just playing it by ear. Same here, Eric. We'll hope for the best. Appreciate your time as always. Thanks. Appreciate it, Jonathan. That was Eric Collins. He's always so much fun to talk to. We appreciate you for listening to the very end. If you missed any part of the last episode with Grant Williams, go back and listen to it as well, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search Modern Day NBA. While you're there, make sure to subscribe. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Hoppy. Have a great rest of the day.